Hey, Wayne. So I thought the first time we'd have you on the pod as uh, as co-host, we might actually have some football to talk about, but it doesn't seem to be the case. We've got COVID to talk about. It uh, seems to be all we've talked about for the last two years. So how are you anyway? I'm great. I'm non-impacted by COVID, non-directly anyway. Um, yeah, the gods conspired against me. They knew what was happening. They knew I was set up to host, co-host for the first time on your wonderful podcast. Stepping into the considerable shoes of Paul, and then this happened, and United haven't even played for me to <laughs> moan about. It's unbelievable. Well, I'm sure there's something we can find to moan about. Anyway, I'm sure everyone knows you, but perhaps, uh, perhaps tell us a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself, and then we won't have to do that again. Yeah, okay. I'm 40. 40? It, yeah, that's like, terrible. I was afflicted by the big 4-0 earlier this year, and um, yeah. That the most interesting thing about me is my age, as I keep rambling on. I th- I think what happened is when I turned forty, I decided that that was all I was ever going to talk about, right. in order to sort of mentally prepare myself for the next decade. So I've been doing that, saying I'm forty a lot. But yeah, other people might know me other than being forty as as a writer on United. Ed, we go way back, and I feel sometimes yep. I feel like a little bit of a, a fraud when I say that I'm a writer. Because when we started, obviously, started knowing each other, I should say, you know, I was doing podcasts. I was, you know, writing everywhere on any website yep. that would have me about United. And it just sort of developed into into writing books, which has been a very fortunate um, yeah. career to make. So, I mean, I guess that's how I would, I would describe myself, a writer, a biographer, a ghostwriter. I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of former United people um, over the years in a variety of different kind of avenues really because I, I love talking about uh, talking to players and stuff like that but you know you talk to the coaches you talk to the physios and um different managers and stuff and you get a, a completely different perspective of what the club's about really and um having done that for the last decade and uh, you know you and i obviously everyone who listens to this hopefully lifelong united fans and yep. we all have this insatiable love for the club so being able to sort of understand it from the perspective of those who were looking after the football side of it and not just the players, because obviously the players have got their egos and their contributions yep. and even the ones who didn't win titles have got their egos and the contributions. So to talk to those people who were responsible for how the football's meant to run and how, you know, they felt Manchester United identity is supposed to be on the pitch. Um, that's been one of the most enjoy- enjoyable aspects of the, yeah. sort of the last decade for me. So yeah, people know that I've got bore on about that a lot i do like to talk about that because i think it's so fascinating and i don't think a lot of people do uh, when he got um married with the ferguson era you know yeah. a lot of people would talk about a being a, and, and they're right it was a, a victory of mental strength a lot of times un, under ferguson but people would sort of disregard the tactical aspects of it or the holistic approach he just said four four two bombastic united but i always feel it's a little bit more compelling than that a little bit more in depth so yeah, I've, I've been known to babble on about that and <laughs> not quite as humanly positive as Paul, I must admit, but I do try and be more positive towards United. You're not the kind of biographer who looks for dead on people. I'm just trying to think of an example. Your your recent one on the Sunshine Boys on the, the De Silva brothers is, you know, is very upbeat about the players and their careers. And uh, I think, you, you know, it kind of comes across how much you enjoy doing that and digging into not always the most famous players, you know, um, and it's, uh, it's kind of always unique insight, I think. Yeah, sorry, even with the, the more famous ones like Beckham and Best, 
I always like to, um, you know, it's going to be about a mix of different things where they're obviously known as much for celebrity as for the football. And the stupid thing is that I always approach, I say stupid because I think it's such a basic approach is when I, I set out to write those books, the premise was just write about the football and it didn't seem wildly controversial at the time. Do you know what I mean? But I'm looking yeah. back and thinking, well, maybe it was. Um, but yeah, that ties into the sort of positive aspect, the endlessly positive aspects of romanticising United because you, you don't always romanticise Beckham and Best because of the way that their exits happened, really. And Okay, um, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think that's probably what people expect from me, a, a certain amount of romanticization. although I do try and be objective as well. Ed and um, I, I shall try my level best to be objective. I I I, I always do a good counterbalance because I can't help but uh, go to uh, the worst possible doom scenario about United. <laughs> it's not quite as bad as my my feelings about the cricket. I, I grew up watching cricket or listening to cricket, and England got battered all of the time, which is happening again right now. And um, Paul will know this, but whenever I yeah, for many years recently, England have had the best one day side on the planet. And uh, by some distance, but I'm always my mentally my mental state is always prepared for doom, and <laughs> and I sometimes feel like that about United, and it's more justified. Anyway, I mean, is is it a doom scenario at Old Trafford right now? I mean, in ninth, apparently nineteen players and staff have been tested positive. Obviously, none of them actually named for sort of medical confidentiality reasons. Although I reckon we'll work it out at some point. Um, yeah. depending on who's back and who's not. Uh, shut the training ground down. Um, the under-18s game was called off as well as the first team games against Brighton and Brentford. It's kind of worrying times, isn't it? It is on, on the aspects of the human condition. And, you know, first of all, hope that everyone's all right and yeah. isn't too badly affected by it. And that the residual impacts, because we still don't know everything about this illness, that we know that it, can have long-term impacts. So even for athletes, you yeah, so Dean there's... Henderson was yeah. one. Yeah. So you, you hope that, I mean, I don't sound again, this might be the, this may well be the, the, the optimistic in me coming out here, but I don't think it was a bad time for these games to be postponed. Um, a little bit like in Rocky four, when Apollo fights Ivan Drago at the start, right. And, and Rocky says you should postpone it to, to learn a little bit more about him. I feel like that's a bit of a godsend for us at the moment because if we'd have played Brentford after what, how we played against Norwich and if we'd have put in a similar performance, I think we they would have embarrassed us, quite yeah. frankly. So it's a bit longer to, I mean, yeah, how many players at the moment can train, we don't know, but it's a little bit longer to get used to the new manager's methods. Yeah. His new methods under the coaches that he's got in there. The pandemic side of it is obviously dreadful because you, you look at it from the human perspective and we don't know how long those repercussions are going to last and right. how hastily everything's been sort of done because of um, because how erratic the national response has been to, yes, yeah. to this as well. And it has been dreadfully erratic. People don't know what they're doing from one day to the next. I mean, I, I, was, I was amazed actually. I was, I was back in the UK. I mean, yeah, listeners know I, I live in the US now. That's a whole different story, the US. But I was back in the UK in August, late August, I think it was. And it was as if the country decided that COVID didn't exist anymore. I, I, I was a bit shocked because where I live in Seattle, everyone's ultra cautious all of the time. When they, a couple of weeks ago, when they announced masks were compulsory again, we went to the local um, supermarket and we took our masks and 
no one else had masks on. And I'm like, right. did you miss the word compulsory? Or maybe it wasn't compulsory, but it was words to the effect of you've got to go out and wear your mask now. Yeah. And and they didn't. And and I wonder if, I don't, maybe football's not exempt from this, that there's just been this casual approach to it, a more casual approach as this sort of, this new variant has come in. And, and maybe it has been part of football as well, that, you know, obviously a couple of weeks ago, there were only a couple of cases in the country. And then all of a sudden it's, it's this variant that's, grinding the country to a halt and I, I don't know if this is right Ed, and maybe I should have been more prepared for this but wasn't there the case where they were releasing the the figures on the Premier League monthly testing and yes. didn't they didn't they miss one and we didn't know how many were tested for a certain period of time right and then all right. of a sudden now there seems to be a massive jump in cases and I wonder if if there was something missed in there that they weren't able to track the growth. But obviously, internally, the clubs have got to be aware of these kind of things. Yeah, they've and, gone down to once a week testing, I think. And right. um, now they've gone back up to three times a week uh, with the emergency protocols. And they may even go up to daily again, I believe. I mean, and that will bump the numbers up just because they'll be catching more cases than they used yeah. to. But but also, it's clear that uh, I'm no epidemiologist but uh, it seems clear that this is this is wildly transmissible, this yeah. variant, and this is why people are getting it. And that did give me pause for thought with United. You know, what what is it? Is it the players are following the kind of national mood and they're out and about and they're just catching it in their daily lives because, you know, players like to go out and even if they're not drinkers these days, they attend bars and restaurants and functions and commercial stuff. And so is it that they they weren't taking precautions or or are they all, are they vaxxed? Because actually, like a few months ago, United were one of the lower percentage mm. clubs in terms of being vaxxed. Or is it just bad luck? This this variant is catching people who are, are vaxxed at a much higher rate than than before. You know, and, and that would be the worrying scenario for the football generally because of its high profile. There will be pressure on football to kind of shut down if if the case rate keeps jumping like this. You know, even mm. if it's just following the national trends. I do think that in the next couple of weeks, maybe it'd be a sensible thing to just put a block on fixtures for a couple of weeks and just rearrange them at some point because, you know, to try and sort this while it's gone a little bit out of control to sort of put a reset on it. Um, I don't think there's anything too wild about that. I mean, a lot of people would start crying about it and sort of saying it's a, a bad response, but you're quite right. In terms of, there seems to be a bit of a reaction anyway. Since these games start postponing, clubs seem to be briefing a lot more about more testing don't they and a lot of clubs are trying yep. to put out the figures like oh we're we're actually moving to 100 percent testing and everything like that's an 100 percent vaccine sorry so i mean it's good to see that there's some kind of response but you can't flick a switch overnight and make that happen and obviously there's a massive um complication about forcing people to have vaccines and stuff like that it's a big debate everywhere isn't it you know vaccine passports or mandates on vaccines i mean it's very common in schools um i i had to have six or seven different vaccines just to to move um yeah. so i mean we we accept it this is super controversial because of course i think there's um you know my my understanding of of football is is that many of them are concerned they're worried about the, its potential impact on their bodies and they just don't want that change even if probably the risk of getting covid in the longer term impacts is bigger than than the risk of anything any um any impact from the vaccine but there's been a reluctance and uh, on that side of things and then then we've kind of seen the other side of things this week with Klopp saying he wouldn't sign anyone who wasn't vaxxed and i wonder whether 
And there was an anonymous EFL chairman quoted in a piece in The Athletic, I think, saying something to a similar effect. And you can kind of understand why clubs and managers might start thinking like that, because it's a risk. Absolutely is. And I mean, yeah, we don't know which of our players. I know there's stories that there's one or two United players who are very resistant to that. And I wouldn't, again, it's not, I don't think it's wise to speculate on that kind of thing, especially as well. Look, I've had my, I've been double vaxxed and I'm waiting for the booster. Say out now to anyone listening, I'm not going to be one of these people. I never have because it's such a new, everything's so new with this and we're still learning yeah. to live with it. That I'm not, apart from the wild conspiracy theorists, um, I, apart from that section, which you're always going to get a section of the population like that. I, I still have a, a lot of sympathy for people who are resistant to, you know, having a second one or a booster or, or the first at all because of, of the lack of information that we have still, yes, even yeah, though, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm still on, on board and saying that I've, obviously I've, I've had two jabs, I'm waiting for the booster, but it's such a, like you've said earlier, it's, it's a massively controversial thing. Um, and this thing about Klopp, the, it's all about freedom of choice at that point. If Klopp comes out and says that, then he's entitled to, because obviously he's got the needs of his football club or wherever he goes after Liverpool to think about that he wants to instill that kind of philosophy. And that's fine because that's what he believes in. It, it, it's a little bit of imposition on other other clubs to sort of take a similar stand, and that's what I don't really like. But I mean, that's what happens whenever you get into anything remotely political, is that you have mm. things like this that uh, are going to be divisive. And then it's fair play, because, I mean, everyone's going to have different opinions on it. As far as we're concerned at United, look, I, I think that they've taken every sensible precaution, and I hope that they don't come out sort of saying either way that, you know, urging people to do i would hope that rangnick or whoever's in charge of transfers doesn't come out and start saying things like we're only going to buy players who have had two uh, they've had the booster or, or double vaxxed and everything like that because i don't know how, how sensible it is to get involved in that side of it just so sort of yeah do what you need to do in house to to do everything to keep moving forward and then they seem to be doing that because of the way that i am in, in my sort of personal life i would like united to be more cautious about this be more cautious in terms of if we need to take another week off if we need to keep some players out do that rather than make any risks but yeah it, well it, it just, feels like yeah. the risk is not going to go away so no, i mean yeah. the break the break in football uh, or in like general life because there's there's some talk of some kind of breaker after christmas you know, you know, that may well be sensible in terms of cutting the spread. Uh, the risk is there and it's not going to go away, unfortunately. And I think we're going to have to live with this as a society and football generally and come up with some policies. And those policies are not, there, there's no clean way out, I think, of that. You mm. know, it seems like there'll be some kind of passport system for going to football. You have to show your Vax card. Or I think you do anyway, right? From 1st of October, you had to. And um, we we didn't at uh, United. Right. We haven't. I haven't. Uh, I, I haven't at least. And what I will say is that the the stewards at the games are so apologetic. A lot of people have a different. Obviously, we've all got different ways that we deal with this, and we have different levels of how we welcome invasion, basically. And the the stewards that I've always dealt with have always been very very apologetic. The last one was saying sorry with every piece of scan. Of me. It was like sorry, right. sorry, 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 and I'm like, it's your job, man. Don't worry about it. But I know I can understand a lot of people find that more difficult. I do understand. I think that they said that the next game was going to be the one that would have been right. Brighton, where they would have shown the the cards. And I, you know, if that's what you needed, that's what I would have done. Well, um, it might have to on. just to keep it on. I understand that um, non-political things like whether you're going to get a vaccine or not get politicised quite quick, quickly. But we've seen 
they have used football as a distraction repeatedly. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think the, the more Premier League football is seen as risk, either on the player side or on the fan side, the more likely it is the government will kind of use that. And, and I don't think any of us want that. We, we want football to be able to continue on, to be safe, want people to enjoy themselves. Anytime you go to a bar here or a bar or a restaurant here, you have to show your sort of digital scan thing. And, and then this is America, right? It's freedom. Um, you can smell the freedom when you get off the plane. And I will um, say uh, the best thing about this season, um, obviously it's a low bar, but the best thing by far has been going back to the game and seeing yeah. people that I haven't seen for like 18 months. Honestly, the, it, it's been quite an emotional thing. Yeah, to, yeah. To be fair, we've had, it's been a very bumpy emotional ride in terms of the, the results and the way the results have happened. Not just like, obviously it's 5-0, 2-0 to Liverpool and City, but we've had the last minute winners. We've had the the last minute drama against Everton and Villa. So a lot of drama is in there. The, the emotional return of Ronaldo, which was really a, a really strange day around Old Trafford. So you've had all these days that have been quite momentous. Uh, the, obviously the opening day as well. So all these big events at Old Trafford that we haven't had for a long time in terms of I don't, we haven't had for a long time to say that because they've all seemed to be really big every time it's it's happened that it's been extra emotional as well. So, and I've, I've loved that. I've loved the fact that I've been able to reconnect with my mates and it's something that, um, I definitely don't take for granted every time yeah. that I turn up yeah. to a match, do you know, and to the face with the prospects of not having that again, like you said, we want football to continue, hopefully with us able to go as well. I don't know when I'm back in the UK next. The last time I was allowed to get back in without a quarantine. So I was like, right, yeah. So I may do that again. We'll see on um, how bad this uh, Omicron variant is and, yeah. and what the situation is in the various countries. What else has been happening? We had Kieran McKenna um, and Martin Pert leave to take over at Ipswich. What, 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 do you think, what do you think McKenna's legacy is at United? I mean, the kind of club take is that he's a really well-respected coach and and um and a really important part of the setup but i guess not enough for ragnick to want to keep him nicky, nicky but was the one who re recommended him to joseph right. right and this is mckenna we're talking about so yeah he was recommended by but was he at spurs before and he was, was a youth coach at spurs, spurs yeah. Yeah. yeah i'm gonna be honest ed like I, looking at what's happened under ollie and looking at the i try and look at it positively try and say that we finished third and second and that's some kind of progression and I wonder I don't want to you're asking me for my opinion I don't want to edge my bets and say you know only with the benefit of hindsight but because of how weird this dynamic is with this group of players and I still I'm on the fence with this group of players considering yeah. that they were they were coached under a flagging world-class coach in Mourinho yeah. a desperately flagging world-class coach and a lot of them were coached by, or a few of them were coached by Van Gaal as well, who was a, a desperately flagging world-class coach. I don't know how much of the responsibility falls on the players and how much of it falls on the, the management and coaching setup. Because you have two arguments then. You either say that the players were brilliant, but, but they were underperforming because of, or desperately underperforming because of how any inexperienced the coaches were. Or... Yep. The coaches were brilliant because these players are wildly inconsistent. And I think that obviously the truth is somewhere in the middle. I don't think that even with Guardiola, and I've said this before, maybe with Klopp, because I rate Klopp as a better coach than Guardiola. I don't think you could give Guardiola 
any squad of players that United have had in the last seven years and that they would have challenged for the title. I think that they might have finished second, but I don't think that he would have had, even he yeah. wouldn't have been able to motivate them to, to finish either than what they did. And that's the, where the strange grey area comes in for yeah, for yeah. the coaches because it's like, how, how well did they do? And maybe we find out when we see the results of these coaches that are currently in charge, you know, in institute, we, we see, oh, well, they've done a good job or they've done a terrible job. Will that make us revise what we think of McKenna uh, or Solskjaer? Do we then look at that and think, well, do you know what? It was actually quite an achievement to achieve that level of consistency such that it was for that period of time. Sure. From the club's party line is obviously it's going to be that he goes with well wishes and that he's highly respected. The people that I've told to in the club, I don't want to say this, and I'm certainly not going to throw anyone under the bus, but a lot of people still didn't know what McKenna brought to the table right. in terms of, um, you know, obviously he was respected by the players and you've got that split opinion where a lot of people would say that Carrick and McKenna were in control of tactics. And I'm not sure, still I'm not sure how true that is because you saw, even in the short period of time after um, Solskjaer was sacked, the tactics were largely the same. There wasn't a yeah. massive deviation from it. As much as some people wanted to say that there were, there were a couple no, of notable selections. Yeah. yeah. It, it was, we're totally splitting hairs with that. I just think that McKenna in particular, I think that obviously we're going to see what he's made of as a manager and that will give us a, a really big, um, answer yeah. in terms of his capability. tough club at Ipswich. Yeah. I mean, I have to say the financial problems, and I mean, they've got. I think I'm right in saying they've got fairly new ownership now, American ownership. I think it might be. Um, yeah. So we'll see. We'll see whether he lands well there. Yeah. Uh, so um, you know, it's a it's a hard business football, and there's no hiding place for a coach or players. Um, although I, I do suspect there's a few players at United are quite happy to hide on the fringes of the squad, uh, and I think we see that. Yeah. But, but certainly for the coaches, I mean, there's they they will have been called out. There'll be discussions in the dressing room about them, and I'm not surprised that he's gone, McKenna. I'm probably more surprised that Phelan is still there, because it's it's kind of natural for both the players and the new management to want to clean house a little bit, and and even if that means. Yeah, the set of coaches and a manager are going to effectively change three times because unless Ragnick's really successful, he's going to take up this consultancy role, whatever that really means, and there'll be a new coach and a whole new set of his team goes along with it. But maybe that's just what's needed, you know. And Paul and I had this discussion many times, you know, what the balance between the quality of the coaching or the manager and the coaching staff is and the players and and the structure above it because I just wonder United are obviously trying to move to a better structure now with Murtar and Fletcher I don't know whether their roles are really clear yet especially with Fletcher sitting on the bench so much oh he didn't he wasn't against Norwich which was kind of mm. interesting are United moving to a place where they can have the structure above the coaching that they can kind of live with this change uh, of mm. managers because there's a clear direction in which they're heading and you know you certainly feel that if if Renier has a real, you know, has some real power, or he's working closely alongside Murta, after this period is over, you certainly feel like the United are probably in a, a clear direction. Now, whether yeah, they're well, successful or not, I don't know, but it's a direction, isn't it? And then you can bring in a new coach, um, yeah. and they may have a clearer set of ideas around what the players are. And and just a final point, I mean, you, you talked about the, the quality of players and some have been under, yeah, four managers. For, I mean, David Hare has been under all of them, right? Yeah. 
Fergie, Moyes, Giggs, Van Hal, Mourinho, Solskjaer, Carrick, Ragnick. That's quite a lot for a, you know, he's not that old. No, no doubt. Right. But, you know, there's a clearer direction from above. There'll be clearer direction on what kind of players are needed. Uh, and that kind of, you're never going to get it right, but um, an, a real understanding of where the squad is, is headed and, and what is required to be successful. I think with Phelan, just quickly on him, I, I think the reason why he's still there is, firstly, he's one link of consistency because obviously Pert has gone, he's gone with McKenna to, to Ipswich. And so there's one element of stability there in Phelan. Phelan literally just signed a new three-year contract yes, as well. Yeah. Now, I, w- I know that the others signed new contracts recently as well, but Phelan's was the standout one. Now, I by the way, I, I don't have anything against Phelan. I think that he's probably got a lot of value there that people um, don't don't realise. But one thing that I was told as well that, and I don't know how much of this is still ongoing, that the club was still overseeing a lot of stuff that they wanted to hire. They would they'd identified a lot over the summer and they'd put the feelers out to get them and that they were still waiting for a lot of staff to serve out notice periods. Right. So I don't know how many of those are still ongoing and how much of that Phelan was involved in. I know that he was involved in some of it, but I just don't, I don't know if Solskjaer being sacked means that all of these staff who they were in the middle of recruiting, if that's been complicated somewhat or if that was the responsibility of Fletcher there was this number of coaches um I, I just don't know how many yeah uh, and and what those well, notice periods were Murtai should be the consistent factor there I mean yeah if he's, a, if he's a real director of football which is questionable what do, what do you know about Chris Armas and Sasha Lenz yeah so Sasha's obviously been there for a little he's already been there he's been on the bench he's been around yep. the squad we've seen that um and that's a very interesting one for me I think especially we talked about the composition of this group of players and a lot has been made about their mentalities and certainly without wanting to name individuals I'm sure anyone listening can can name three or four at the top of their head that they yep. want, want to come up with so it'd be interesting to see what he does I always found that the most compelling aspects of the Solskjaer reign, that you've got a player who represents and he knows what it takes to represent everything to do with United, but he just couldn't pass that message on as a manager. So can a, a psychologist do that? Because the biggest problem that United have always had for the last six, seven years is raising the game on a consistent level. It's not about necessarily matching Manchester City or, or Liverpool. It's about being the best that they can be. And obviously we know that the players haven't shown that if they'd have been the best that they could be over the last seven or eight years, I don't think any of us would have that many excuses or that we wouldn't have that many problems with the players. We just can see that the as well as we can see that the managers have not done their job, we can see that the players have underperformed as well. Yeah. And they, I mean, how, how many have, have performed to their best on a consistent basis uh, yeah. of this group or, or the previous groups for the last yeah seven, eight years? Yeah. Very few. Very few so, are completely consistent. So, so Sasha, you would think is going to come in and may, maybe address that. Um, hopefully, that's that's the purpose of him being there, right? He's got to try and sort of tune into the players and and get them to be a ruthless um, set of winners. Just to to diverge from the point a little bit, because uh, um, well, it's not really a divergence. It's it's a, it's the same point. You talked earlier about players going out. Aaron Maguire, as an example, he's always pitched out after a game, and for whatever reason, it doesn't really. I'm not get bagging on him for that. He, he goes out and does it. He, he, you know, he went out for his father's birthday, whatever. Even if it was after a defeat, he still went and did it. They're, you know, they're so, people too. Exactly. No, yeah, I've got no problem with that. But I was, as you know, I talked to Paul Parker weekly, and he he yep. always says that if we ever lost a game like that, 
in any circumstances, we wouldn't go out. We'd be, and we've all heard the story about Fergie after losing 5-1 against City. He went home and, and cried in bed for a day. Yeah. So, and he would, didn't even want to read the papers the next day. So you have all that aspect. And you wonder if, and I don't want to say all modern footballers are soft, because obviously they're not. There's a massive grey area there because modern football is much more different and players have this profile where they've got to yeah. be seen to be present and everything like that. So you've... That's the area. That's the key area what um, Sasha Lenz uh, has got to come in and, and deal with. Um, Chris Armas, you asked about, I don't know how much hands-on work he's actually done with Ralph Rangnick. I know that they were un- involved in the umbrella together. Yeah. The the thing that I've heard a lot about him is, and people might get infuriated by this, is that he's positive like Ollie was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. People were like um, rolling their eyes at Ollie's positivity. Armas is said to carry the same kind of attitude yeah. that he's meant to be um, upbeat and, and lifting everyone. But you look at his record, his record's not great. And then you wonder, you know, I'm sure Hugh, as soon as I mention the names Jimmy Lumsden and Steve Round, you'll have shivers <laughs> down your spine yeah. as well. And, and I'm not saying that Chris is going to be like that. We don't know. We really don't know. But it's it's this is the uncertainty that we're talking about. And yeah. this is the, the, I know that a change needed to happen. I'm not, um, disputing that whatsoever this is my only concern when you have something that was relatively stable and I know that the form was horrible but at least in those insular for, perform periods of seasons where we were having rotten runs of form at least we turned it around and got a good yeah a decent result at the end of it so we finished third second blah 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 now that's the only problem that you've got with making such a massive transition in the middle of the season because you've yeah. got no guarantee of what's to follow. He didn't have no guarantee with Van Gaal and his staff. He didn't have any guarantee with Mourinho and his staff. We don't know. It's Obviously, you want to be excited by it. It's it's a massive unknown at the moment. And apart from Rangnick, who, again, I want to be positive about, but all the good things he's done have, have not been at a club anywhere near the size of United. MLS is strange because of the... The, the the kind of weird central contracting system anyway. So yeah. it's very hard yeah. to sustain success. And, you know, they're like the biggest wage budget in MLS is like $28 million a year. United is 15 times bigger than that. Yeah. So yeah. it kind of gives you a sense of the scale. And yeah, you're right with Ragnick. He's never worked at one of the big clubs. And that, that is a question mark, I think, for all the, the sort of brilliance he's he's had as a kind of club builder. I wasn't necessarily in coaching roles. So no. it's it's a big change. I guess you got to the point where there was no there was no choice. Something had to give. Yeah, especially yeah. especially if the, the players had lost faith. So um how long and what the kind of bump is, we'll we'll see. I mean they've they're six unbeaten now. And there will have been some time on the coaching like Carrington. You know, I don't know the impact that'll have. But but we've got a game coming up against Newcastle. We hope, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, ju- I just watched them get completely destroyed by Manchester City. I mean, they're in desperate trouble, Newcastle. And I have to say, I mean, you know, it won't be surprised to anyone listening. I'd be quite happy to see them go down. Nothing against Newcastle fans because I, I, I kind of feel, I feel some pity for Newcastle fans. They've had decades of loyally supporting their club. They're on in the Gallagate shirtless, Newcastle fans. <laughs> and, um, supporting the club and they've had an, an, like an abysmal owner, uh, just a an absent father of an owner for the last how what was it fifteen years or something? I can't remember how how long he'd been in charge. And now they've got something that I, I suppose the vast majority of Newcastle fans are very happy about. 
you're absolutely right. We had that healthy respect through the nineties and the begrudging admiration that they played good football. Still felt we played, you know, like they got this as a reputation as being the entertainers and we were still playing entertaining football. It wasn't like we weren't, but then you had this, I lost all respect for them when a whole respect for them. I lost a massive amount of respect for the club when they sacked Bobby Robson. I was so right. devastated. I've never been as devastated by a club sacking another manager as I was with the way that they treated Robson. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was disgraceful. Um, and I've always felt that ever since then they had an idea above the station. Obviously they're a massive club. Don't get me wrong. Um, I know Fergie once said they were a wee club from the uh, Northeast and <laughs> yeah, which was the cl one of the classic Fergie lines, but, um, I, I'm in the same boat as you. There are a lot of, obviously, time serve fans there, the shirtless in the Gallagher that you want better times for. But then there's all the counterproducts of this takeover and you've seen them all come out, like welcoming the takeover and everything like that. And the, the reaction to it, which has been, um, to, to be fair, there are some great journalists who've refused to back down over it. Adam Crafton has been magnificent in his yes, coverage yeah. for the Athletic. Yeah. He, he refuses to sort of treat it with this sort of glowing... Um, admiration that everyone else seems to be doing. But I'm, for the same reasons as you, you know, a little bit of gloss has gone off the Newcastle thing. And I really hope that, you know, yeah, it'd be quite entertaining to see him go down. I mean, from the aspects of, you know, they're probably still good. This is a long-term project for them. So they'll just kill the Champions League um, metaphorically next season yeah. with um, all the well, all the signings that they'll make. But it, it looks like a good time to play. And the, the, the initial shine of that takeover was gone. Um, Eddie Howe still needs a little bit of time to, to get used to his players. Obviously, I think he might have even given up on this group of players considering that he's going to be able to replace most of them in January and, and the summer. Do you know what I mean? So what, what's the point in investing too much time in this squad? And that's a pretty good situation for United to to take them yeah, on yeah. Ra rather than take on a club like Brentford who are playing with such high energy. Ra even rather than take on... I know you said that Brighton were quite convenient opponents, but... A team who can keep the ball at Old Trafford is not a team that Manchester United would want to play because they. No, give, true, true. You know, yeah, um, yeah. So Newcastle convenient. Um, if it goes ahead, it's a really convenient game for us to play, and um, it, it, it is. And they're, they're a real disaster at the moment, and and there's nothing Eddie Howe can magic up to change change that around. I mean, they just ship so many goals. Minus twenty three goal difference. So yeah, um, and you know, sad, sadly, Steve, Steve Bruce has had a good coaching career, but this was uh, a step too many. The players are mostly of championship standard. There's a few really entertaining ones in there. Um, Callum Wilson's a good Premier League striker. Alan St. Maximum is like one of the most fun players to watch. Yeah. I, I, I don't know how effective he really is, but I love watching him play. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. And because he's just, he's just fun. But I mean, most, most of the rest of the squad are, are bottom Premier League championship quality players. And that's, that's why they are where they are. I, I do wonder, I mean, if they do end up going down, which I think will probably be based on how many players they can get in in January. And if they can, and if any other Premier League clubs will actually sell to them, mm. they might not, because there's a lot of anger at, at uh, board chairman level, owner level, about this takeover. So we'll see whether they're able to bring the players in. And, and if they go do go down, well... You know, the EFL financial regulations are, are uh, pretty strict, but if they only spend one season there, they'll never have to undergo the test. Yeah. So they can spend as much as they like to get out of, out of it and build from there, you know. So who, who knows? Um, on, the, on the pitch, they're an absolute mess. Um, and United will have had to, uh, a good few weeks to have a look at them and you'd think we'd put them away. 
you'd hope you, you would think um you would think, famous yeah. last words historically we've made a prediction on this show about games and it became something of a joke because we don't know what united is going to turn up in the current situation with games being called off all the time when we don't even know a game is going to go ahead yeah uh, it's it's really hard to pre- prepare or think about it so it must be hard for the players don't you think i mean they're, they're going to be training as normal I, I guess they train assuming that the the game is going ahead um, yeah right i mean we don't know what they said seven players would have been available for yeah for the other for the, for the last game against Brighton, that's what they said. Yes, and the bubbles don't help because um, because the under twenty three bubble is supposed to be a separate bubble, and we're not supposed to mix between them. So. And we don't know the identity of any of these players, so it could you know it could end up Tommy and in goal. We might not have any centre backs. Might not have McTominay and Fred. They might not be available, um, and that would be a disaster. But you don't know which composition. You know all of the right backs, all of the left footed players might be out. Um, because we don't have any of the information. It is weird, like you're talking about it in such a complete vacuum. I mean, I hope, obviously, I, you know, I hope, I hope everyone's recovered and uh, everyone's had like mild or asymptomatic cases. And they caught them because they they're doing regular testing and everyone's going to be all right. But it's unfortunately we're in this period of time where we're, you know, we don't we, physiologically we don't know how it impacts people all the time there's there's variants and it appears to be a lot to do with genetics and so you know how the players react to that we don't know and this new variant is catching people out more regularly you know i have a a good friend back in the uk double vaxxed and he's pretty ill has been for two weeks it's not getting better so it that could be the case there's longer term impacts on some of these players we hope not Mm. not so that's newcastle uh, touch wood, something actually happens there. I really hope so. And and then we the Atletico Madrid in the Champions League. Uh, didn't get a chance to talk about that. That's going to be an interesting matchup because, I mean, Atleti not in a great situation at the moment, shipping a few goals, which has not been the case under Diego Simeone for his decade in charge there. But mm. it's not the same Atleti back four. Although in Yano Black, obviously they've got a a really world-class goalkeeper and they've still got dangerous players uh, even yeah. if it's not quite happening for them in La Liga right now yeah no it's a it's a tough tough tie for us they're not scoring loads of goals as well but they're sharing the goals around I always think form goes out the window when you then that sounds like a cliche but when you restart the Champions League the, the round of 16 tie is always like an opportunity for the team to regalvanize themselves you know they can take yeah. on a big opponent and certainly i mean we're in a position where I, again i'm supposed to be the po- <laughs> the optimist on this podcast <laughs> compared to, to your pessimism but i feel like i've been i've been negative all the way through but when you look at the the quality in that team the, the fact that they've got a lot of quality in there especially in the front line yeah. i know there's a lot of inconsistency in that front line as well with joe felix and, and griezmann but they when they are good um, and we have a defence that is quite content to allow an inconsistent attack to shine, which yeah, is I'm sure, yeah. fairly infuriating. But um, they, and they've got a lot of good players. Um, you mentioned the defence. We've still got Trippier, who's um, obviously that's a player who can come back and haunt us. United are a storyline club, aren't they? Do you know those kind of things yeah, tend to happen yeah. like that? They're not this team, the team that they were. If we can put a professional job together. And hopefully, you know, I'm talking about United of the first 10 days under Rangnick and, and it was a bit of a disorganised mess apart from the first 30 minutes against Palace. So my pessimism is based on that, but there's every reason to believe that in, in six weeks we could be completely different. But the way sure. that t- 
Tuchel's um, Chelsea were were quite rubbish in the first few weeks, and then they flicked a switch, and they were yeah they yeah. were really good once they had the benefit of that coaching and they understood the the message and they understood the way that they needed to interpret it on the pitch. We could be looking at a very different United by the time that this tie rolls around. Um, right, because it, it's uh, late late February and, and sort of mid-March, the tie. So we, we have got quite a way to, to wait for this. Yeah, you know, you're right. I, 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 you know, I agree. I think we'll see a different United by then. I, I, don't, I don't watch them every week, obviously, but I do catch La Liga now and again. And uh, they, they always feel like a throwback. Yeah, they'll play four four two every week. It's you kind of understand where the tactics are. The trouble has been injuries. I mean, Griezmann and Angel Felix missed a defeat against Sevilla this weekend. I mean, Suarez is still there doing his thing, but obviously he's not getting any younger. I mean, they've had some trouble in central midfield as well. So you know, it's it's not quite the same Atleti as it once was, and you kind of see that in the results. And they're like fifteen points behind Real Madrid right now. So they're not in a good place. Might mean that they think about the Champions League as a real opportunity. And it is it is a side, and Simeone's sides are always kind of built like good cup sides. I mean, you'd expect them to be you expect them to be very tight and and try not to ship the goals that they have been shipping. The first game, I don't know if it's really an advantage anymore, but the first game is away from home. So United at least will know what they have to do at Old Trafford. I hope touch pray that there's fans at Old Trafford. They haven't won at home this season in Europe, so right. If you can, it's the classic thing with United. Though over the last few years in Europe, in the big games, they've been better away from home than they have at Old Trafford, and that's obviously it's a, a thing that is going to need to change for this because the one thing strangely about Atletico, um, they seem to be more adventurous away from home than they used to be. That's the byproduct of. Like everything he said that's changed there, Simeone hated to have come up against the Simeone team two years ago. Um, now I, I'm not so bothered by that, but I am fairly concerned about what the home leg might bring because obviously United have got to be more open. You would presume, based on the complexity of the tie, United will probably be more open at home and that's probably where yep. they're going to thrive a little bit more. I'm sure United will look to gain some control in central midfield away from home. That's what Ragnick's first thing he identified. This is where United are losing goals because there's not enough control in midfield. And and so he's played this sort of narrow four in midfield. And, and so do Atleti. So it could be very messy in that, that central midfield. And, yeah. um, so anyway, it was interesting. Finally, we finally got there because we had PSG out of the hat first. First time, <laughs> like um, it was very entertaining that draw. If if ridiculous, finally got around to a different tie, and and uh, the fans that go will enjoy. I've not been to the Wonder. I went to the old ground, Hathaway's old ground, which I really enjoyed. It was a really um, old school ground, you know, a bit of a mess yeah. of a ground, but but tight uh, to the pitch. And um, so I've not been to the Wonder, but it looks like a fantastic stadium. So I'm, I'm sure there'll be um, a good few thousand Reds over there enjoying that away day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I miss the old Spanish stadiums, the ones that just went up and up. Um, yes. <laughs> but yeah, you've got to move on at some point. I, I, I've been to both uh, Camp Nou and, and uh, Bernabeu a few times. I mean, it's, it's a story, but I once dated a Spanish girl whose father was on the board. So... I've been up in the gods in the cheap seats and also in the presidential suite at Bernabeu and it's kind of a very different experience. <laughs> anyway, it should be a good trip. So um, that's about it. Anything else that we missed this week? We um, covered COVID um, as yep. comprehensively as we could. 
in the absence of actual football, I, th- I think we did a good job. Considering there was no actual football to talk about, we we covered it as well as one podcast could. Fingers crossed for the Newcastle game, and I, I can't remember where we're, we're chatting again. Some sometime around Christmas or the New Year, I think. I've got a few people who are, are going to be dropping into the show. I reached out to a few people. My mind was that I, I can't really ask, uh, you know, put a burden on new people and ask them to do stuff when they've got so much going on. And so I reached out to you and to Dan and a few others and said, hey, hey, do you know anyone? Can you recommend anyone? And uh, you came back and said, yeah, I can recommend someone. Me. Something <laughs> like that. I'm, I'm exaggerating. <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad you did. No, it's not an exaggeration, Ed. That's, um, I've said it before, but you and Paul, obviously it was the first podcast that I listened to as a United fan. And I, I obviously I've followed it ever since and loved it. And you were the first kind of people I connected to on Twitter when I joined there as well and, and sort of t- talked to you about that. So yeah, it's not, when I, I say at the start, that it's uh, an honor to fo- follow Paul and to sort of their big shoes to fill. I absolutely mean it. Don't talk him up too much. His head is, he'll be listening to this because he's a lurker. Uh, he may have cancelled his social media, but he's on there, no doubt. And uh, his head will be swelling at this point. He had so many nice messages. It's sickening. Sickening, I tell you. Okay. Well, enjoy your retirement, <laughs> Paul. I mean, I mean them, if, even if Ed edits it out or if it gets edited out by um, other means, then I, I still mean it. I was delighted when you asked because it's just a, like I said before, I say, I say it to Barney as well about being a part of United culture. Yep. This, this podcast is part of United culture now and it's great to be on and um, hopefully provide but sort of a different kind of flavor for listeners. And um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, great. Backers, stay tuned. We're going to chat about um, what's going on in the Premier League because there are like three games this weekend that weren't called off. And everyone outside will see you on about the 28th, I think. And I'm with Tom Mortimer, who you'll all get to know as well. Wayne, lovely to chat to you and chat to you soon. Take care.